There is no children's church this morning. As you heard earlier in the announcements, Christian and his whole family are sick, so he was going to be doing the children's church this morning. Not available, and therefore no spin tonight either for you high schoolers. There is no high school meeting tonight. So we can pray for Christian and his family, but I know a lot of other families in the church have experienced this bug that's going around. I want to begin our time with prayer that God would bring his healing to us and prepare our hearts and minds for the study of his word. Father God, thank you for who you are. We are here to give praise and worship to you. We do want to do that in spirit and in truth. We want all that takes place this morning in this small gathering to bring glory and honor to you, that you would look upon our worship, our meditations, and be pleased. And we know that you will be pleased as your spirit moves among us, taking captive our thoughts and our hearts and moving us to look favorably upon you with praise, with thanksgiving, with worship, but also moving in our hearts, Father, to bring along our sanctification, our service, our, our obedience, our very lives being given over as living sacrifices into your hands. So please move among us this morning. Have your way with us. Minister to each and every heart. Give to me the ability to clearly communicate the things from your word so that we are edified by it and that your name is praised. And we pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. I'm in Ephesians chapter 1. Please don't join me there. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in front of you in the chair in the rack below. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read again verse 12 down through verse 20. What did I say? Ephesians? I may have said that, but I didn't mean it. You should know what I mean. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1. Thank you for that correction. Philippians chapter 1. There's a number of things on my brain, so I'm hoping and praying that we're going to be focused. I'm going to be focused. Philippians 1 verse 12 Paul writes, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And our study will begin in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I was noting in the news just this last week that Switzerland has passed the law, and it was of interest to me because it had to do with, oddly enough, the suffering of lobsters. And I don't know if you saw this in the news, but apparently they've discovered that when you take a live lobster and drop him into a boiling bath of water to eat him, he's going to feel something. So out of kindness to the lobster, they now passed a law that you must stun that lobster before dropping him into the boiling water. It is now law in Switzerland which is interesting to me because if you want to spare that lobster the pain, you've got to shock him first and then put him into the boiling water so he gets a double dose of pain. Now, this doesn't have a lot to do with my context of suffering necessarily, but it's an interesting bit of trivia that I thought would be nice to start our morning on, knowing that we're not the only creatures that suffer apparently. And somebody's looking out for the kindness of lobsters who feel pain in hot water. 
It's just silliness. It really is. We're, our world is going to silliness, and I'm going to have more to say on this tonight as we talk about worshiping God, because it appears that our culture is going more and more to worshiping the creation than the creator. And we see these kind of things happening. Our focus of attention this morning is going to be on the suffering that Paul was doing for the glory and the progress of the gospel. And you heard from those words penned by him to the church in Philippi, that's what he was appointed to do, to preach the word, to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And in the past week, we looked at suffering as it's having an influence on unbelievers. <clears throat> and Paul was greatly moved by the fact that there he is as a prisoner, chained to a Roman guard, and yet it gave him opportunity to preach Christ to the Praetorian Guard, and to everyone else that was attending to his needs as a prisoner. Not only that, we saw last week that suffering had a supporting influence on the church as the church became emboldened to preach Christ. They watch Paul, they see his testimony, and they're moved in, in some way to be filled with courage that they might go out into the streets of Rome and proclaim Christ more boldly. Now I want to turn our attention more inwardly to the heart of Paul. Because as you see in verse 18, 19, and 20, Paul gives to us almost a window into his own soul. And we're seeing the stirrings of God working in this man who is suffering in imprisonment. Again, there is a theme of suffering here. But the overarching and predominant theme that we're focusing on is the priority of the gospel that reigned in Paul's life. And it is oozing out of this text. We're going to see it again and again in verse 18, 19, and 20. What drove this man, what compelled this man, even in his suffering, was the priority that he placed on promoting proclaiming and seeing the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should be no different with us. That is going to be the, 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 the truth that I'm hoping comes across in these messages. His priority, Paul's priority, should be every believer's priority. The third area of ministry, then, that we're going to look at identifies the, the influence that suffering had on Paul's own sanctification as the one that is suffering. And this is not a new uh, principle in, in Scripture. We're seeing this suffering and sanctification theme all throughout the New Testament Scripture. I want to refer you to Romans chapter 5 because this again is something Paul communicated to the church in Rome in regard to suffering and the importance of that principle. He writes in Romans 5 verse 3, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tri tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. We are going to see the manifestation of that hope in our text this morning. Paul is going to illustrate by the testimony of his own life how suffering has caused this growth in him and produced this marvelous hope. And this is what he goes on to write to the church in Rome. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Peter confesses the same principle in his first epistle in chapter 1, speaking of the preciousness of our faith. Our faith is of greater value than even gold and riches. And how God perfects that faith is through trials and tribulations. It's called testing our faith or proving our faith, strengthening and growing our faith. Here in Philippians chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 18 to 20, we are given again a, a window into Paul's heart. Paul is giving testimony to what God has accomplished within himself through his chains, through his suffering, and even through the torment of these wrongly motivated uh, preachers who are causing more distress to Paul while he's in his chains. And here we find him rejoicing. Paul's not in comfort here. He's not living the convenient life. Paul is not enjoying a life of abundance here. Nor is he experiencing the temporal pleasures of life. Those are all good things and good things to be enjoyed. It's just that Paul's not enjoying them right now. And still, there is joy. His confinement is a time of suffering. 
And yet he's found here rejoicing, not in the troubles themselves, but in the progress of the gospel that has come from his troubles. And in these verses, he shares with the Philippian believers the joy he finds in his own sanctification, in what God has done to him personally through his suffering as a result of his chains. Paul is exposing something of his heart in suffering, and Paul does not even use the word sanctification here, but you and I get that understanding clearly. He's showing us his progressive sanctification, how God is maturing and, and, and perfecting his soul, even in his suffering. This morning, we want to take a few moments and look at that sanctifying work of God on the heart of Paul. And we're going to begin in verse 18 with the joyful ministry that Paul rejoiced in. He has this continual and persistent joy being expressed because he is part of the gospel ministry. It's a joy that he reaffirms a second time, even in the same breath, I will rejoice, and again, yes, I'm going to rejoice in this. I'm rejoicing in this, and I'm going to continue to rejoice in this, is what he's saying. What is this that he's rejoicing in? It is the progress of the gospel. That, again, is the priority in Paul's life. To see the gospel of Jesus Christ advanced, promoted, proclaimed. In other words, he's going to continue rejoicing. Verse 18 opens with that question, what then? What's the purpose of it all? What's the meaning of it all? What's the importance of all of this? What does it all matter? And he answers, it matters in every way. Because Christ is being preached. The heart of Paul in all of this is that his personal grief and the trials that he was experiencing in service to Christ were irrelevant to him. In light of the progress of the gospel, what he was experiencing, his pain and suffering, irrelevant. It didn't matter. I rejoice anyway. I rejoice in spite of the suffering because Christ is being proclaimed. And this is the heart of Paul. Imagine for a moment... If Paul were sitting there in that confinement and he was dealing not with badly motivated preachers, but false teachers, those that were destroying the gospel, that were perverting justification by faith, that were preaching a different Christ, Paul would have been expressing a very different attitude. And we know that because elsewhere in the New Testament scripture, he openly confronts and warns the church about false preachers. But this is not the case here. These were not false preachers. They were preaching Christ, even with bad motives. Paul could rejoice because the name of Christ was being exalted. And the implication from that is that there were those that were lost coming to faith in Christ as a result. So in this, he could rejoice. It is important to understand that Paul is not commending those preachers that were giving torment to him, those preachers with wrong motives. Nor was he in support of the injustice that Rome was bringing against him by slapping cuffs on him. He wasn't supporting the G Jews for throwing them, in, or throwing Paul at, at the Romans. He was not commending any of those that were doing wrong, and we don't want to take the position that nothing should be done to correct sinful wrongs that may cause hardships for other Christians, this text does not give approval to those who are preaching with wrong motives. We don't want to read this text as if it were a commendation for any of us to do the right thing, but with the wrong heart. This is not a commendation for that. There is sufficient scripture that condemns wrong motives and sufficient warnings to Christians who dared bring grief to the family of God. In fact, scripture instructs the church to confront such sins and to take action against those who persist in sinning against other believers. But this is not Paul's objective here. It's not what he's dealing with. The point that our texts make in that in spite of the challenges of suffering, we can find joy where suffering advances the gospel. We are not presuming to find joy in suffering itself, nor is joy found in the absence of suffering. 
Rather, the priority in Paul's life for the gospel was bringing him joy in spite of his circumstances. In other words, that joy couldn't be robbed merely by the circumstances that he found himself in. And this is the importance, again, of having that gospel priority. Paul enjoyed freedom as much as the rest of us. In fact, Paul fought for his freedom. He stood before the rulers of Rome and protested injustices. He wanted to be set free from his chains. Like Paul, we can experience true joy without these kinds of pleasures and conveniences. Again, Paul is not trying to support these things. He's merely saying that because his focus is on the gospel, he can have joy even in his suffering. What suffering had done for Paul is that it had caused him to look outside of the temporal things of life for a satisfaction. I'm not going to find my joy because everything in life is going right, in other words. He will pick up this discussion later in the letter in chapter 4 when he speaks about uh, being satisfied or content in all circumstances, whether in plenty or in want. But the important thing that we need to see here is that certain preachers were causing extra grief for Paul And rather than become frustrated and a bitter servant of the gospel, Paul finds joy in the truth that unbelievers in Rome were hearing the gospel proclaimed in spite of the harm it was bringing to Paul. And this is the testimony to his heart and the attitude as a man that's being sanctified by Christ and being sanctified through the trials that Christ was bringing Paul through. And I think this is an extremely important text for the church today because we can all too easily give in to despair, discouragement, bitterness even, or sinful responses to the wrongs that others commit against us. It's possible to serve alongside other Christians who may become jealous or envious of us and our success in the ministry. They may serve the gospel in some way that causes difficulties for us personally, while at the same time bringing an actual support to the gospel to others. It is possible that that can happen. And we may have to confront these harassments, these injustices, but our joy should still be in the progress of the gospel. And when that is our priority, it enables us to work alongside other people that don't do everything right to work alongside and with others, in cooperation with others, that even cause us difficulty when our focus is the gospel. When our vision is fixed on the promotion of Jesus Christ and it's taken off of self-promotion. This kind of joy that we see here in Paul in the face of suffering can only come when we fixed our priority and our lives on the very gospel that has redeemed us, rather than a priority of my own comforts, or perhaps even my own recognition. So here we see in verse 18, the sanctifying work of God on Paul's life, who gave him such rich joy just in being part of the ministry of the gospel. God gave to Paul a small portion of the work that he wanted done. And he's done the same for you and I, if we're believers here this morning. So that's evidence, kind of a window again into the very heart of Paul's sanctification, the work of sanctification that God was doing on his life. Secondly, moving to verse 19, Paul had a confident trust, a confident trust, and he expresses that even with the opening words, for I know. He is absolutely certain, and this is a continuation of, of verse 18. He's just expressed his dual rejoicing in his own suffering because of the progress of the gospel that that suffering had created. And I rejoice in that for I know something. And here he's exposing the work of God not only to give Paul that joy in ministry, but also to give Paul that confident hope, that expectation, that confident trust in God. And those two things, as a work of God's sanctification within Paul, joy and trust, go hand in hand. That's why verse 18 and verse 19 are connected. They're plugged in to each other. 
And if you think about it, it is the confident trust in God that gave Paul that joy. If you think of, uh, of a kind of a joy that was separated from that trust, it'd be a false joy. Why is it Paul rejoiced? Because he trusted God. He saw even his own suffering, something was taking place. And that's where his confidence was placed in God and in his work. And there is the result of his joy. And this is the heart of Paul. Why does Paul rejoice in suffering for the gospel? It's because he knows something. For I know. And Paul expresses this later in chapter 2. If you look over at chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. God is at work in Paul's life. And this is what he's now declaring. For I know. I have certainty about something. As noted in our previous verse, joy in our Christian experience is the sanctifying work of God. But so is trust, a sanctifying work of God. And where we lack such joy, we can be sure there is a weakness in our confident trust in God. Where we're not living in the joy of the Christian life, something is missing in regard to our confidence. And this is where the Word of God can help build us up and encourage us, not only in joy, but more importantly in trust, which fuels that joy. And I think that it does us no good, sometimes we can get into this trap, but it does us no good to compare our suffering with other believers. Well, I'm going something far worse than you're going through, so you can't possibly understand why I don't have the joy that you have. Comparing one another in that way is never going to be profitable. The reality is none of us suffer in exactly the same ways as each other, but all of us have this one thing in common. We all suffer. We don't all experience suffering in the same way. So when somebody comes up to you and says, you can't possibly know what I'm going through, they're taking you down a bad path. We don't experience the same things but we all do experience suffering. And what you see in Paul is regardless of the suffering, there is joy because joy comes from one's trust in God. There are three things for us to consider here regarding what Paul has certainty of. And you will notice again this is directly connected with his gospel priority. He had a trust in God that comes from directly from that priority. And if we're lacking that kind of priority today, as may be true of many of us, this is where we can learn from the Apostle Paul. Why does he have such a priority in place in his life? And I'm going to say, ultimately, it's because of his love of Christ. It's his love of Christ that has driven Paul to have this gospel priority. And three things are shown here in regard to his confidence in God, his trust in God, beginning with a confident trust for his own deliverance. I know I'm going to be delivered. And that word deliverance is the word salvation. It comes from the Greek word soto or soter, where we get the word soteriology, the study of salvation. Well, Paul is declaring, I have certainty, I know this, in regard to the outcome of my salvation or my deliverance. Now, given the context here this morning, it's important for us to know what Paul means by that deliverance. Because there are some that presume what Paul is talking about. He's going to be delivered from his chains, and he's not going to be executed by Caesar's order. He's going to be set free. And as you look at verse 25 and 26, that's almost the implication we can come to, because Paul did anticipate that he might be set free. But that's not the context here. That's not what Paul is getting at. Because if you look at verse 20, he didn't know if he was going to live or die. Yet he is confident in his deliverance. And therefore, he has something else in mind in regard to his deliverance. I want to share something by Dr. William Hendricks that is helpful to you and it was to me. 
In his commentary on Philippians, he writes, reading not only verse 19, but verse 20, it will be seen that for Paul, salvation or deliverance consisted in this, to quote his own words, that Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ's glory and Paul's salvation, then, cannot be separated. Paul is not talking, then, about getting out of his chains or escaping execution by Caesar. He's talking about a greater deliverance, a more profound salvation. And this salvation takes him all the way into the future when his own glorification will be realized. Paul is anticipating, whether by life or by death, I'm going to be saved. This much I know. I have confidence in this. And that salvation, that deliverance, began for Paul on the road to Damascus, the moment he surrendered to Christ. And that deliverance continued throughout the progress of his sanctification as he was growing and maturing, even under suffering and chains taking more and more on the likeness of Christ, and one day that eschatological deliverance will come. The glory of being made fully like Christ and in His presence forever to live in the home of God, in His heaven. So the deliverance that Paul has confidence in here has the whole scope of his salvation in mind, and he's declaring to the Philippians, this cannot be robbed of me. Regardless of my chains, whether in life or in death, this much I know. My own deliverance is certain. I have absolute confidence and trust in God for this. And he extends this confidence into a second principle that I think is kind of stunning. His confidence in prayer in light of his deliverance. Confidence in the tr- and c- trust in the prayers of even other believers. Paul continues, verse 19, to express what he knows to be true in connection with his ongoing, his ultimate, and his final deliverance in salvation, that the prayers of believers are tied somehow to God's sovereign and certain work in his life. Carrying each of us along on this journey of salvation are the prayers of others. And as powerful an influence as Paul had He fully understood his need. And I highlight that, his need that he had for the prayers of other believers on his behalf. And very often, you find this in his letters where he's appealing to others, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. I'm giving you two examples in your note sheet this morning, but you find it all over Paul's writings, appealing to the believers to pray for him. And I've picked two in connection with his gospel priority. Notice carefully what Paul writes to the the Colossian believers. Chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Paul writes, devote yourselves to prayer. I don't think he's just making a wordy kind of a statement there that says prayer is a good thing. He's actually commanding the church, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. And note what they're praying for. That God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, which I've also been imprisoned for. Now stop and think about this for a moment. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, specially gifted with powers, enablements, and special revelations from God. God has appointed Paul to that preaching ministry. Do you think God is going to open doors for the Apostle Paul? Why does he ask these people to pray for him? God's going to do that. But somehow the sovereign hand of God is tied to these believers praying for Paul. Otherwise, he would not ask for it. And this is echoed again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we'll be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. There he's not only asking for the people to pray for him in a ministerial sense, 
but they will be rescued from the hands of evil people, even as Paul sits there in prison in Rome. Passages like these show evidence of Paul's need to have others praying for him. And this is the confidence that Paul is now sharing with the Philippian congregation. And when you think about this, this is truly a remarkable declaration. In those days, Rome and Philippi were far apart. It took a great deal to travel that distance. And here Paul is sitting in Rome in prison, far away from the Philippian church. And he again is this magnificent apostle, specially powered, specially enabled, given special revelations. The powerful, the eminent apostle Paul. And way over there in Philippi are some humble believers. And he's appealing to them, if not pleading with them, pray for me. I need these prayers because this is where my confidence comes in my own deliverance, my own salvation. Do you see what is kind of a mystery to us here? Somehow the sovereign hand of God working through Paul's salvation is connected with the prayers of believers. I think it is certainly wrong for us to declare that prayer frees up the hand of God. That would be entirely inappropriate to say. God's hands are not chained. He does as he pleases. But God chooses to accomplish his sovereign purposes even in the sanctifying, progressing work of salvation in the Apostle Paul through the prayers of many. Paul, then, is not counting on his own spiritual resources alone, but was always seeking the intercession of other believers. One scholar made this statement, and I'll just pass this on to you. He made this brief statement. The prospect of his trial, Paul's trial, drove him to prayer, but it did not drive him to despair. He had confidence in that. The prospect of his trial drove him to prayer, but it did not drive him to despair. In telling the Philippian church that he had confidence in the power of their prayers on his behalf, he was exhorting them to keep on praying for him, knowing that their prayers gave him this confident trust. It was building in, this, in the heart of Paul this confidence in God. Now we commonly think of prayer as a conversation with God. Words and thoughts spoken to him and received through the mediating work of Jesus Christ. But what we may not quite as frequently think about is that prayer is directly connected with the power of God in our lives. What God does in us and through us very often is accomplished through the prayers of his people. We read in the, the epistle of James that many believers don't have because they don't ask. And you remember James concludes that letter by commending to us prayer by saying, the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. It does a lot. Prayer is that which keeps us utterly dependent upon God. It keeps us coming to Him to give us all that is needed for the moment. But not only that, prayer keeps us dependent on one another. And this is the point that I'm hoping we capture here from this unique text in Philippians 1 and verse 19. Prayer not only keeps us dependent on God, it keeps us dependent on one another. Doesn't it strike you odd that the very mature and spiritual Apostle Paul was not adequately supplied to pray for himself? He knew his circumstances better than any other. He has a deep connection with Christ. Do you not think that Jesus is going to listen to Paul when he prays? And yet Paul is not satisfied with his own prayers. What's giving him confidence and trust in God is knowing there are other believers praying for his progressive growth and salvation. This is meant to be kind of a convicting question for us this morning. Because we are so very often much too private about our deep spiritual needs and problems. We may believe in the power of prayer 
And because we believe in the power of prayer, we come very often to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. But we may be all too often content ourselves to keep the matter of prayer all to ourselves. Why does Paul put so much emphasis on others praying for him when he could just be content to pray for himself? Because God is determined to accomplish His sovereign purposes in our lives through prayer, and not just me praying for me, but others praying for me. It may well be that God has chosen to not answer some of our prayers because we have not trusted in prayer enough to seek the intercession of others. And this may seem odd to us at first, but there are all too many passages just like this one in God's Word that commends the church to be praying for one another. And the needs that we have are quite extensive, such that we should be asking one another for that ministry success. This is where we should in part be finding our confidence, our trust in God, because others are praying alongside my own prayers. Prayer is never to be seen as something that has us directing God to act on our behalf, but rather God chooses to work out His sovereign plans and purposes through our prayers. And if Paul could confidently trust in God to work spiritual success and deliverance in his life through the prayers of other believers, how much more should we? I'm just comparing my own life to the Apostle Paul, and I'm not there. How much more do I need then? the prayers of the church, the prayers of one another. And this brings us to the third part of the confident trust that Paul communicates in verse 19. What he knows is the provision of the Spirit. And again, the provision of the Spirit, I believe, is directly connected with the prayers of the church. Verse 19 goes on to show that prayer is not something that stands all by itself to empower the church. Rather, in addition to prayer, Paul's confident trust was also in the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And I think it is noteworthy here that the Apostle refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this is because Jesus Christ promised that He must send the Spirit as He returns to the Father. I must go to the Father, he said. If I don't go, the Spirit can't come and you need my Spirit. So I think Paul makes a deliberate theological statement in regard to the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is the Spirit that Jesus promised. And the Spirit that Christ promised came to do exactly what Jesus said he would do. Look in John 14. I think it's one of those rich passages that described to us the Holy Spirit and His ministry to us. <clears throat> Chapter 14, John. Verse 16, 17, and 18. The words of Christ Himself. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. There we learn a couple of truths right away about the Holy Spirit. He has come to help, and He's never going to leave us which is the promise of Christ again, isn't it? I will never leave or forsake. Verse 17, this is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now we're talking about the indwelling presence of the spirit. And then he promises, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I, Jesus, will come to you. How does he come to us? How has he come to us? It clearly is through the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So as we receive Christ by faith, he comes to indwell, to abide within. This is what Jesus promised he would do. Now, there's some writers, going back to our Philippians text, that see that the provision of the Holy Spirit comes as a result of the believer's prayers. And while this is possible, the meaning of this verse is not altered much by dealing with prayer and the provision of the Spirit being two separate sources of Paul's confidence. In other words, Paul was confident in his own growth and deliverance 
because of the prayers of the people and also because of the provision of the Holy Spirit. And it's that aspect that I believe Paul is communicating here. God works through the prayers of the saints and the Holy Spirit is that God who is at work in our lives. So we know from God's word that the Spirit supplies spiritual power for successful Christian living and ministry and for strength against temptation and the allurements of sin. We know that the Spirit gives us understanding and discernment in the word of God's truth. We just heard that. He is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit also produces His fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians chapter 5. This is what the Spirit accomplishes. But there are two ways that we can understand Paul's confidence in the provision of the Spirit. Paul may be saying that God has provided His Spirit or Paul may be say, saying that the Holy Spirit has provisions that he gives us. There are really two ways that we can look at that statement in Philippians 1.19. And I don't think it matters, really, which way we look at it. Because if God does give to us the Spirit as his provision, we know from the words of Jesus, the Spirit will provide certain things to us we need. And I think both of those are included in what Paul is declaring here. He's celebrating that God has provided this spirit, but he's also celebrating that that spirit is providing to him the spiritual graces and nutrients that he so desperately needs. And I believe the emphasis of Paul's words in verse 19 is that he is confident in his deliverance no matter the circumstances that he finds himself in because Jesus Christ has provided Paul with his own spirit. And what is directly implied here is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within the hearts of believers. The Spirit is there to be active. He's there to be powerful in the work of salvation. And that is what Jesus began in us, isn't it? Philippians 1, verse 6. He who began a good work is going to complete that work in the day of Christ Jesus. Some time ago, I read a very commendable author referred to the Holy Spirit as the shy member of the Trinity. And I understand from his explanation what he means by that. I personally don't like that expression because shyness to me, since I come from that background, is a, or is a fault in my human character. And it's hard to see that as an attribute of God. But in some sense, the Holy Spirit is that quiet yet very active presence of God. And it's important for us to see that as believers, he's actually taken up residence within us. The Holy Spirit is not off in a distance in heaven, sitting in a chair and orchestrating events. He has now taken up residence within us. And that's going to have a powerful impact on our lives. It's important that we're aware of this impact because this gives us confidence in every circumstance. God's nearness his active presence, his powerful presence. Since we recently finished a study in the book of Galatians, we may well remember in chapter 5, Paul teaching us that as long as we are believers, we have the Spirit of God within us. And remember, we're still living in a body of flesh. And the flesh has its desires as well. But Paul says the Spirit opposes the flesh. That's a blessing for us. He's in there opposing the desires of the flesh. And the desires of the flesh have been made evident by Paul. Things like anger that's unrighteous and, and desires and lusts and greed. But the Spirit is there within us, powerfully opposing those things. And the Word of God appeals to us to give way to that work of the Spirit. Paul could find himself in the most fearful, uncertain, and unsettling circumstances and still have complete trust in God's promised deliverance, his salvation, because the provision of his indwelling spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ, was accomplishing that work in him. Notice in all of this discussion that Paul was a very confident man. That's one thing I noticed in verse 18, 19, 20, the confidence that's coming out of Paul here. But this is not self-confidence. Not in any way. 
He was not self-confident because he was not self-sufficient. He was prayer confident and he was spirit confident. He was dependent on the praying church and the provision of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he can say, I know, I have certainty about my deliverance. The third and final aspect of Paul's sanctification or his heart that I want to see this morning is verse 20. And I've referred to this as a shameless kind of a hope. I think it's interesting that Paul picks that word, shame, because there he is, chained to a guard in prison, subject to others and their commands and their authority. Nonetheless, the verse continues, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, some of these truths we're going to see in our ongoing study as we turn to verse 21. So we're going to be examining some more of the content of this verse in our future study. But for now, please observe that these words again are brimming with confidence. Earnestly expecting, not ashamed in anything, with all boldness, will always be exalted. What does that sound like to you? That's a confident man, is it not? And again, his confidence was not in self. It lies somewhere else. His confidence is coming out of not his circumstances, but what God was doing to him and through him. It's not about what's going to happen to him because he admits verse 20 here. I don't know if I'm living or dying here. Still, he's confident. Through the prayers of the church and the provision of the Holy Spirit, Paul earnestly expected and had great hope that Christ will be exalted in his body. There again is the priority of the gospel. It's one thing to have confidence that Christ will be exalted. It is quite another to say Christ will be exalted in me. We're all willing to declare Christ will be exalted. Paul was not saying that by itself. He was saying Christ will be exalted in in me, in my body, in my life. And Paul contrasts that personal exaltation with things in this life that would otherwise bring him shame. I'm not going to be shamed in anything. Amusing to us, because there he sits, probably unbathed, chained to a Roman guard, confined to quarters. There's a humbling position for you. But Paul's focus, again, is not on his circumstances, at least not in the sense that he's being shamed by those things. Paul's gospel priority views his suffering as an opportunity to exalt Christ in his body because his life is completely under the power of the Spirit of Jesus and bathed in the prayers of God's people. He won't be ashamed in anything that gives him opportunity to exalt Christ. Now, of course, if Paul or any one of us were to sin against the Lord, that would be a shameful thing. But again, that's not the context that Paul is dealing with here. In his ministerial context, there is nothing that would be shameful to Paul in his circumstances so long as he is there exalting Christ, has opportunity to proclaim Christ, not even if they execute him, not even if he dies. And that is what a Christian earnest hope looks like. This is what hope looks like. If we could just take a few moments and apply this to our own lives, I think we can more clearly see the varied circumstances that may come into our lives with a more spiritual focus from Paul's testimony here. Our trials may be in social areas. And maybe in our family circumstances, our marriages, maybe suffering in some way at work or facing health or financial issues or difficulties. And from a very human perspective, many of these things can seem shameful. Health things, they limit what we can do. They strip us a little bit of our pride because we can't function on full steam. Finances limit. 
family discord. It limits. It brings some shame merely from a human perspective. But it really doesn't matter what God permits into our lives where we give ourselves over to living with a priority on the gospel. Because our suffering under trials can be used by the Spirit of God to exalt the name of Christ. That's what Paul is declaring here. It may well be that it is why God has brought this suffering to us in the first place. So that Christ may be exalted in our suffering. And as we see our trials and as opportunities come up that represent Jesus Christ through our lives, we proclaim, we exalt His name. And there's no way that any shameful circumstance can put us to shame before Christ or even in our own eyes when that is our priority. And notice what having this gospel priority did for Paul. He was able to exalt Christ in his body with all boldness, it says. With all boldness. He was so earnest in his expectation and hope that he was bold then as always. Bold at that moment, but he'll always be bold. And that's what he's declaring here. I just want to bring our conclusion to an, or, or our study to an end by this conclusion. I've given you just three summary statements from these verses. These are very impactful verses. So important in a practical sense for the church. First, the joy of the Christian in this life is found in, key, in, in keeping the proclamation and the promotion of Christ. That's where our joy in the Christian life is found, in keeping the proclamation and promotion of Christ. I might possibly have thrown in a word that's wrong there, but I think you get the idea. Number two, we are kept from self-confidence as we put our trust in the prayers of believers and the provision of the Spirit. We all are going to affirm the provision of the Spirit, and it's important but I do believe we may have diminished in the past the importance of the prayers of believers, plural, believers, the church. And third, believers are to exalt Christ in life and death and with all boldness. If this Christ is our glory, there is no shame in preaching his name. There's no shame in enduring suffering for his name. And therefore, as Paul, we can say we can go out with all boldness. Oh, that Christ would use us in that way. That he would bring us as a church to that kind of bold proclamation and declaration of the good name of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this rich testimony given to us by the Apostle Paul. And it's a testimony that is in the context of a man that was suffering, being persecuted, being tormented, and being inflicted. And that all the more brings glory to you. That all the more uh, proclaims with exaltation the good name of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use us as believers in that same way. Give us the richness of this gospel priority in each of our lives so that whether we're experiencing good times or we're suffering under difficult times, our lives will be to the praise and the glory of your Son. We want to be used in that way by you. Give us a boldness in these things. In Christ we pray. Amen.